Hello and welcome to the Where Do We Begin podcast. I am an ex-VFA footballing guru, part-time cricketer, sometime basketballer and big-time sledger and very tough in the quizzes. I am Merv Hughes. Thanks for that, Merv, and hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Where Do We Begin? It is a big one. Uh, my name's Harper, and my co-host is Lockie. How are you on this splendid day, Lockie? I'm awesome, thanks, Harps. How are you? Oh, mate, I'm absolutely pumped uh, to be bringing all our listeners the first episode of Season 2. We are beyond excited uh, for you guys to hear this one. Uh, this is something Season 2 has been something we've been working on uh, behind the scenes for quite a few months now, and yeah, we're super proud to uh, be releasing the episodes now uh, on this Monday, March the 1st, uh, and yeah, it should be good. And if you like what you hear, you can support us further by uh, following us on social media. So you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at WDWVPod. And you can also find us on Facebook at Where Do We Begin. And we also have a YouTube channel. Uh, we have a lot of great content on there and be awesome to, I guess, interact with as many of our listeners as possible. So yeah, that'd be awesome. Thanks so much. Yeah, we do love a bit of fan interaction. I've been getting some feedback recently. It's really good to get that. So if you want to give us more feedback or even give us a review wherever you get your podcast, that would be much appreciated. And as our new little catchphrase grows, uh, subscribe, share, and support. If you can get around those three words, you'll be getting around us. So that would be heavily, uh, heavily appreciated if that even makes sense. But anyway, we'll get into our guest. Uh, you already know who it is, and you probably wouldn't need much of an introduction anyway. He's one of the most famous cricketers of all time. So should we just go straight into it, Lockie? Let's dive in. Okay, and our guest today, it's our first ever uh, person from this particular sport. Uh, you might know him from his 95 Werribee VFA games, or, <laughs> or his fishing show, or even his ads for the Manshake, or maybe even uh, his 53 tests and 212 wickets for the Australian national cricket team. And between us organising this and now, uh, he's now been inducted as a member of the Australian Cricket Hall of Fame. And I'd say he's probably the best Mervin we'll ever have on the podcast. I'm delighted <laughs> to welcome onto the show Merv Hughes. How are you, mate? Oh, but Lockie, how are you, boys? All right? I'm great, Merv. It's an absolute honour to have you on and hopefully uh, have a good chat and have a, share a few laughs, yeah. a few tears <laughs> and uh, plenty of smiles along the way. Uh, we'll see how we go. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, um, mate, we usually kick things off with a bit of a basic question, just checking in, I guess. How are you going, mate? How's your start to 2021 been? Um, yeah, it's been good. Um, hope it's nothing like 2020, to be honest. Um, yeah, obviously a bit of a rough year this year, uh, last year, and then um, this year just um, yeah started to coast in it. So, family had a, a month down at Apollo Bay. We get down there um, most uh, school holidays, although the schools aren't. The kids aren't at school anymore, so well it seems to defeat the purpose a bit. But we still get down there, spend the month down there, and um, just. Came back up the start of the month um, and yeah, just starting to get back into it, to be honest. Yeah, beautiful. What did you get up there? Uh, we're talking off air, a little bit of fishing? Uh, no, not much fishing, to be honest. Uh, I was on holiday. <laughs> fish for work now. Um, no, just uh, pretty quiet. Went, went fishing a couple of times. Um, but, yeah, just lazing around, a uh, bit of beach stuff, just catching up with people down there. So just on the on the coffee circuit, it seems to go all right. But, Beer circuit seems to work pretty well in the afternoon. <laughs> Got any recommendations uh, down there that we should check out? Um, what, fishing or coffee or beer? Beer. Um, <laughs> there's two pubs you've got a choice for the top pub um, or the middle pub. 
And um, yeah, well, the the top pub is at obviously top end of town, so there's not three pubs there. Uh, and that's that's more your, your afternoon drink, have a bit of a punt, got the TAB. And then the, the middle pub is, is more your, your family, your evening, uh, mealtime pub. Um, and if you're near looking for a coffee uh, in the morning, just 153, Cafe 153, opposite the post office. Good places to go. Great little bit of uh, local knowledge there. And also, were you watch- I hope you were watching a little bit of the cricket while up there. I uh, watched a lot of the cricket, to be honest. So the Melbourne okay. Test match, um, we got down after that. So what's the... The uh, Sydney Test match and the, and the Brisbane Test match, um, and and saw fair chunks of it. So, to be fair, the weather wasn't fantastic um, over over January. So, um, when it gets a little bit cool, I, I don't wander down the beach. Um, tend to sit home, and when the cricket's on, uh, yeah, there's a good excuse to, to sit at home and, and watch TV. Yeah, I've got I've got to say, I was listening to ABC Radio a lot for the Melbourne Test match. Your commentary. It was really good, like really, really good. It was noticeably you were the standout guy for me. You sound, uh, you sound surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't listened to you commentate before. Uh, I was like, geez, uh, this guy Merv Hughes. Well, obviously I'd heard of you, but uh, Merv Hughes, he's a bloody good commentator. I was telling uh, Dad that, telling everyone that. Uh, raving about you. No, it was, it was an interesting one because um, I haven't done a, a lot of commentary work and um, did some work through um, November, October, November when the Sheffield Shield was in the hub. So I did a bit of um, online commentary there and then when I, when I got asked to do it with the ABC, jumped at the opportunity. Um, so to get in there, really good crew um, and it was a fantastic uh, test match, albeit the result. Obviously, India got over the line, but um, to, to be part of that was fantastic. And so I don't know too much about a lot, but I reckon I know a little bit about cricket, so I feel, feel comfortable sort of talking about cricket. Yeah, I'd agree with you there. I'd say you know a little bit about cricket. But, yeah, it's interesting, though, because I feel like commentary, like, I feel like sitting at home, sometimes you think, like, you listen to people on the TV, you feel like you can do that. But then since doing this podcast, you realise how actually difficult <laughs> it is, talking, thinking on the feet, like, and people that are listening, they'll, like, every little mistake they'll pick up on oh, yeah. and then they'll yeah. talk it up. And yeah. you have to be just so perfect each and every time. So I feel like until you do it, you don't really appreciate how difficult and it actually is. pardon the pun, but compared to TV, uh, radio is a whole different kettle of fish. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's... Yeah, without, without doubt, you're right there. And, I mean, that's that's what people thrive on, you making a mistake and then hand it. So I think whether you do TV or, or radio, you can't be too precious. If you you make a mistake, you're almost better just owning up to it and people accept it. But if you if you try and skip over it, um, people dive all over you. But, mate, I'm, I'm not that precious, so any feedback's good, whether it be positive or negative or people getting into me because I, I didn't know what was going on. Uh, fair enough. Open, open slather, I reckon. But yeah, is that just what you do to make your money now? Just doing media stuff, your fishing show, bit of commentary here and there, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, do a do a lot of promotional PR work, so corporate work, sports nights for sports for footy clubs, cricket clubs, the like, and then yeah, whatever comes up. Um, so a lot of lot of corporate work, which is they might be out to a, a conference and and just being a, a guest speaker at a conference or, or whatever. So yeah, basically whatever comes up. Um, but uh, still. Still keep the finger on the pulse with the cricket. I'd like to have a, a little bit more involvement there, but um, apparently when you you turn 50, you lose your marbles and, and you're not wanted anymore. Well, I definitely don't think you've lost your marbles, Merv, and I'm not just saying that <laughs> Although, because I'm I... an arm's reach away from you. <laughs> <laughs> I was ready to call. I don't think I had too many marbles to start with, to be honest, so very hard to lose them. 
before you were a commentator, you're obviously you were a budding footballer and cricketer. Now tell us a little bit, were you a footballer first, cricketer first, or was it a little bit of both? Um, well, to be honest, as a 16, 17-year-old, uh, playing in, you boys wouldn't remember the old VFA, um, so it's, that's now the VFL, so played out at Werribee, um, so year year 11 now, I think it's Form 5 when I was at school, um, my last year I got into the, the seniors of, of VFA and I was playing there, so you're sort of hopeful that the football goes a little bit further and um, got invited down to Geelong, so it's, it's not the draft... Um, as it is today, the, basically it was a zoning, so where you live tied you to a club. Living in Werribee tied to Geelong, got invited down there and probably around the same time I got selected to play cricket for Victoria and you find out a little bit later that um, a lot of the guys around my time that were thinking about football and um, even training with, with um, the AFL clubs were were picked before they were ready. So blokes like Simon O'Donnell, Jamie Siddons, uh, Damien Fleming, Shane Warne, Tony Dottomade, um, myself, because I went down to Geelong, you, they sort of pushed you through a little bit, so you get a taste of it and then you've got a decision to make. Um, and uh, decisions made fairly easily when you get selected to play for, for Victoria. Um, football became sort of second fiddle, to be honest. I'll tell you what, though, imagine, I could just imagine that forward line now. Merv Hughes, Gary Ablett, Tommy <laughs> Brown. It might have got drawn over the hump over those uh, late 80s, early, early 90s period. And then throw Mark Jackson in there. <laughs> would have been a phenomenal forward line. But, yeah, I suppose combination of um, opportunities arose with, with the cricket um, and just sort of changed my focus a little bit. But went down and trained with Geelong and uh, basically said, you know, um, go and have a crack at the cricket. We'll give you a ring at the end of the season. And by the end of the season, it's March, April. They've done all their, their training and they're starting their season. So I suppose they, they don't want someone that's so far behind. And, uh, mate, that was, when was that, 19, 1983, I reckon. I'm, I'm still waiting for that phone call. <laughs> it's interesting though because I feel like they've still sort of used that technique today like young Will Parker as a 17 year old gave him a go on the Victorian side because he was also a potential footballer mm. Will Sutherland it's obviously still a method that they're using today and that oh, giving yeah. the young guys a go so that they choose um, cricket over footy because it does seem to be that footy's been winning over cricket pretty consistently yeah well we uh, I suppose the, the money and the opportunity is is with the football like you, you have to be in the top top 20 players um, in Australia to make real good money and, and the top virtually 30 players within your state to make reasonable money to, to play Sheffield Shield cricket and to get a contract there. Um, so I, I did some coaching with the, the Victorian under-19s, under-21s and the VIS squad and you'd go down and have a look at the, the talent between the 17s and the 19s and you lose, I think it was seven of your best 10 cricketers every year to, to football. And you sit there, oh, this kid's a good player. Well, that's Mark Murphy, he's going to Carlton next year. Oh, this year, he's a good uh, cricketer, this bloke, real good player. Oh, that's Delidio, he's going to go to Richmond next year. And you pick out probably the standout top five players and they, you know they're going to get drafted by by the AFL club. So uh, more's got to be done to to keep the players. But when, when you're picking an under-19 team and you go to a kid, listen um, – you know, we're we're gonna we're gonna train for six months, and then we're gonna pick a squad which you may or may not be in. And if you get lucky enough to be selected, uh, you might get two and a half thousand dollars for for the two weeks. And then you got an AFL club come along, so listen, we're gonna pick you up in the draft. Um, you're gonna be on what sixty k first year payment. Uh, there's there's not a real real lot of decision to be made there, is there? 
So I think even got up to 90K. Yeah. So your first year, well, back then, I, I think it might have been 40, but um, you, you just can't compete. And and kids of the today are fairly switched on and, and they've realised very quickly that there's more opportunity playing AFL football than there is playing cricket. I find it really interesting in this day of elite athlete and finely tuned sports person, you've got uh, – you've still got these people – flip-flopping between cricket and footy and whatever other sport in their 20s. And yeah, it, it makes it makes it pretty hard. There's not too many flip-flopping now. The, the guys, I think, that are flip-flopping um, haven't haven't really made a decision, haven't been picked up. So the guys that, that are still toying with bows, um, they, they haven't been picked up by an AFL club. So yeah. they're still trying to – they still don't know whether at that age they're going to be considered too old. So a lot of them will play VF, or VFL footy yeah. and then they may combine that with cricket. But yeah. you find out that it's got to be one or the other. Yeah. It can't yeah. can't be both now with the, the training that's required for both. Even yeah. if you if you play a footy season, come out of footy season and start cricket season, you, you're probably three, three, four months behind everyone else. Um, and that's not, not in fitness, that's just in what um, – hand-eye coordination, just your batting, your bowling, you've got to get that right and you've got to be training enough to do that. And vice versa with footy, you come out of cricket, you know, you're just not that match fit and you've got to be match fit to, to run around for four quarters to be to be worth anything. So the guys that are flip-flopping probably want to be footballers but haven't been picked up in the draft, so they're not sure where their future lies. Taylor, I'm just jealous that these blokes are elite at two sports and I'm no good at either. <laughs> <laughs> Same, yeah, jeez. But I guess going away from that, we'll go back onto your career, Merv. So obviously you got that first start in Victoria. What was that like? You're going up from premier cricket to first class cricket and being able to represent your state at the senior level. Oh, massive. So um, I suppose people say, as, as a kid, did you dream to be a cricketer? Mate, you, as a kid, you don't know about club cricket, you don't know about state cricket, you're straight in the Australian team, aren't you? So you don't you don't hear of any um, Sheffield Shield matches, New South Wales v Victoria in the backyard. It's always test cricket. So England versus Australia was, was the mainstay. Um, and if you lost the toss, you're England. So that was devastating to start with. But as a kid growing up, you play, play both. And then when I got down to, to Footscray, um, you go down there, play a game in the thirds, get into the seconds, you're just really worried about holding your spot in the team there and you're still focused on that. And if you're playing seconds and doing okay, obviously you're getting looked at for the first and uh, got into the first. And, again, all you do is worried about holding your spot there. And um, I'd, I'd actually broken a cheekbone. So went down to Geelong, had a bit of a training run, um, playing basketball one night, broke a cheekbone. So missed a couple of weeks of cricket and that's when the Geelong Footy Club sort of – broke up to have their, their Christmas break. Um, so that was late November into December. Um, and then I, I started playing cricket again just before Christmas and played a couple of games and then got selected to play for Victoria straight after. So you, you don't put it together then, but when you get a taste of playing for Victoria, you just think, how good is this? So to get a trip to Adelaide, to get a trip to West Australia and play at the Wacker, um, just trying to think. I think we had a game in Brisbane so we went up to Brisbane my first year and you think, this this is pretty special. And all of a sudden, the focus changes from football to cricket um, and, and football sort of takes the back seat. And then the next step, obviously, is to give football away. Um, and, and that was a hard decision to make. 
um, but made that after about trying to combine the two for for three or four years, and probably still hoping that I was I was going to get a, a call back from Geelong. But when that didn't eventuate, um, just full t- full tilting the cricket. Yeah, getting that initial call up for Victoria, um, obviously um, Sheffield Shield, like you said, nothing compared to Test cricket. Your dream of Test cricket when you're a kid. Does it feel like an honour, or does it? Well, obviously, oh, it feels like a bit of an honour, but is uh, it viewed as just the next step towards getting? No, no, it's it's, it's a it's a massive honour. You talk to anyone who plays state cricket, um, and it's it's just reward for what you're doing at, at district or premier level. Is that if you if you're playing um, constantly there and and you're pretty consistent there with your form. Um, that's just the next level. So obviously there's under-19s, there's under-21s, there's Cricket Australia, which is virtually second 11. Um, so you, you get an indication that you're, you're going in the right direction by by playing under-19s, by being selected in the, in the 21s. So um, it, it sort of helps make that decision. And then when, when, you, when you break into the Victorian side, and, and my first Victorian side were, were blokes that I grew up watching or I was watching on TV. So you now we had a, a young Sean Graff playing there and um, you guys won't remember it, but Sheffield Shield Cricket was on the ABC. So I used to knock off school a bit early, to be honest, to get home to watch the, the cricket on the ABC. And when you, when you can see something on TV, um, you know, so the guys that, that I, I – Graham Yellop was, was Captain Victoria, Johnny Scholes, Ray Bright, um, Ian Cullen, Rod McCurdy, all these blokes that I've been watching on TV for a couple of years. Um, and then you get to train alongside of them in uh, in the state squad. And then when you get picked to play alongside of them, oh, mate, it's it's a massive jump in – jump up in, in standard. There's no doubt about that. And, um, again, you just – try and, and get yourself right to get through four-day cricket. And, yeah, and obviously you had some reasonable success in that. And in 85, you made your debut. Talk a little bit about your debut. For a lot of people, it's their career highlights, you know, getting that baggy green cap, <laughs> getting to represent your um, your country. Um, did you have similar experiences with your debut? Um, reward for effort, isn't it, from what you're doing in state cricket. And, and plus 1985, as you said, was um, – the Rebel Tour to South Africa. So Australia lost 17-18 um, of their more experienced and better players. So the door was open for, for some young blokes to come in and, and young blokes that weren't ready to play international cricket. And I was, I was definitely one of those. So I had the opportunity. My, my first test match really didn't go to plan. Um, one for 123 off of 32 overs or something, a fifth ball duck and a couple of drop catches. So it, it wasn't an ideal start, but, you know, people – People often ask, do you ever forget it? <laughs> I just say, mate, no matter how hard I try, I can't forget that. Um, but to find out at the end of that game that you've been dropped from the Australian side, um, you know, the, the cogs start churning over. You, know, you just start thinking about the work that you've done to get there. Um, and, again, the, the jump in standard was was massive and just wasn't prepared for it. And um, you get dropped and you know that you've got to improve. So... The training that we did under Bob Simpson, who's that was his first game as coach for Australia. Um, Alan Border was nearly appointed, but just the, the training that I did with them was so much better. It was all about quality of training and not quantity. So I'd go to training and train for three hours, four hours, and think you're doing the right thing, but you can't train at 100%. And you, you learn under Bob Simpson that it's all about, and his big one was um, perfect, perfect practice, um, makes perfect performance. So um, 
it just just changed the way that I trained. Instead of doing really long sessions, I cut the sessions back and made sure that if I went for an hour, hour and a half, it was it was at a hundred percent. It wasn't at ninety percent. Yeah, was did you expect uh, to get back into the side after being dropped for that first time? Like. <laughs> Were you confident of getting back into the site at some point? Um, mate, when you, when you walk away from a, a side with one for 123, you've you certainly got your doubts and mm. um, lucky enough to, to get in the next year. Um, and I was, I was in and out of the side and I was having a few injury problems and, and whatever and um, really didn't feel part of the side until probably 88, 89 and 89 Ashes Series um, to – to be a part of that and really to be a part of the the ever-improving Australian side from 85 uh, when Bob Simpson took over, just re- had rebuilt from World Series cricket in the late 70s to the Rebel Tour to South Africa. Alan Border and Bob Simpson did a fantastic job um, building a team and by the time we got to 88-89, West Indies were ruling the world. We lost that series 3-1 but from within we'd felt that we'd made sort of giant strides and when we went to England we we actually went over to England quite quietly confident as a team because we got Terry Alderman back Trevor Holmes and Carl Rackerman from from their um, four-year band from South Africa so Terry Alderman in English conditions there's there's no one better and uh, Carl Rackerman I'd probably if Carl Rackerman had a stayed fit I may not have played um, and, and that may have been the end but Carl Rackerman got injured um, I got the opportunity and uh, played the first test got a few wickets um, it was between Greg Campbell and myself who got dropped for the next test match and Greg Campbell got dropped, Trevor Holmes came in and um, basically we only used the 12 players for the tour. So to be part of that and to have guys of the calibre of Terry Alderman and Jeff Lawson on that tour certainly helped me progress. Yeah, it was interesting because that 89 tour, that was really when you sort of came, I guess, onto the scene like, where you became a regular in that side. Was it, I think it was before where you had that really solid series against the West, West Indies, Indies yeah. where you took the 13 wickets at Perth, including a hat-trick, which I'm sure we'll have to touch on a bit later. But what, why do you think you had so much success in that 89 period? Is particularly the fact that you're in and out of the side. But you had the backing of the captain, you had the backing of the coach. Do you think that really helped you? In that yeah, situation? it just, just helped. And also I think the general belief that um, a, a lot of us have played um, a lot of cricket together over the three, four-year period leading up to that. Um, so 85 was uh, the last Ashes tour. Then we had the Rebel tour. Then blokes like you know, um, Steve Waugh, Mark Taylor, Ian Healy, Bruce Reid uh, came in, although he didn't tour England, he was injured. Um, we had a lot of young blokes being given the opportunity. Uh, we just played a fair bit of cricket together, um, just grew in confidence, grew in belief. And by the time we got to, to England, and as I said, with Terry Alderman, Trevor Holmes and Carl Rackerman back in the side, we just thought that we had um, a really good blend of experience and, and the youth had been together for, for like I said, three years. So um, just growing in belief in each other. Um, and, and ourselves and um, we, we actually went over to England although written off by the media as the worst team ever selected to represent the country from within the group um, we were we were pretty confident. How do you go with um, touring England for the first time because it's obviously was it your first time? Yeah that was the first tour first first Australian tour so 89 um, I, I suppose just just the history and tradition makes it very special but the great thing about England is there's no language barrier. Um, you know, the, you don't have to worry about uh, going out in the streets because basically, um, you know, it's, it's just like being in Melbourne or Sydney. 
Um, so all English speaking, you can you can read road signs and, and all that. So there, there wasn't a drama and there's no food barrier. So if you go to, you know, I went on a short tour to India um, and you, you're just so careful about what you're eating and what you're drinking. What and, was your diet in India? Um, mate, it was, actually, it was pretty good. So we went over to India um, and we stayed in Hyderabad. We had 10 days in Hyderabad and it was a one-day tournament. So we had a couple of build-up games um, and then we had our first game in Hyderabad. So we were there for 10 days. And the hotels in India are magnificent, but... If you go out and you eat in restaurants and um, especially off street vendors and that, you're, you're really asking for trouble. But well, I hit the jackpot. So we had Errol Alcott, who's um, our physiotherapist. He was our fitness and, and strength coordinator. He was our dietitian, And he virtually said, right, guys, um, if, if you go out, if four or five of you go out or you sit down to a meal, cannot order the same thing. So you have to order different food. So if one person gets sick, no one gets sick. So you always grab the menu first if you're trying to order, order first so you get what you wanted. And then the next one was that if you're in the hotel and you have something to eat and you get, don't get sick, eat it for the rest of our time here. Now, I, this is where I hit the jackpot. First night I was there, I had the fried chicken, Hawaiian pizza and chips and didn't get crook. So I had that for the next 10 days. It was just, it was fantastic. That's unreal. Uh, so, I, 89 in England, I went over there with a bit of a weight issue and everyone was on my back about my weight and lost weight in, in England. And then when we got back from there, we went to this one day till, so four weeks in India. And everyone sort of relaxed a bit and had to talk to Errol again. I said, what, What's going on over here? I said, What a man. Well, I was under so much scrutiny in England about my weight. He said, Mate, eat and drink what you want to in, in England. No one ever uh, in India. No one ever puts on any weight in India. So I, I went to England in '89. I reckon I dropped about five kilos, and that was unheard of. And I went to India uh, for four weeks. I reckon I put on about eight kilos, and, and that was unheard of. So um, yeah, Errol, Errol Orcott dubbed me the freak of nature after that. He said, "Mate, no one, no one puts on weight in India. You did. No one ever loses weight in England. You did. Freak of nature, and that was it for a while." <laughs> Like that, that kind of thing, the media being um, having so much scrutiny around your weight and just the team as a whole, like you said, worst team to ever tour England. Was that what you said? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that, that uh, can't be good for your mentality, but to do oh, yeah. what you did and to be um, oh, yeah. so. so the, the big thing, the, the scrutiny from the media back in those days, it, it wasn't so much behind the scenes. Um, it was just all about the cricket. So we – when we travelled, when we toured England, 89, I think there was five journalists too. And then the last tour I went on as a selector was, um, was that 2009, I think it was. Um, and, mate, the media over there, there was about 75, 80 Australian media and every, every, everyone wanted a story and no one wanted to write about cricket. Yeah. Mate, send sports journalists over there to write about the cricket, not what's going on behind the scenes. I mean, I'm not interested in that. I just want to know what's going on in the cricket. And to be honest, there's, there's not too many articles I read now that can stimulate uh, me on cricket because they virtually write what you can get from the scorecard. I, I challenge the journalists out there, um, find your love of cricket again and start Start writing about the game, not the players within the game. Is that something that frustrated you when you were on ABC? You know, you're on the commentary and obviously you're surrounded by journalists and you obviously had to go through the press box and the fa fact that you feel like they, they're not writing about the cricket, they're just worrying about other things. Was it sort of hard for you to keep in check? Oh, no, I've still got a few few mates in the media um, and, and talk about that. So um, generally, 
um, the, the media gets a little bit lazy now. So I want to read an article that tells me something more than a scorecard. Okay, so, um, you know, maybe why Davey Warner's getting out, maybe, you know, maybe why why Australia at a certain situation of the game attacked the, attacked the batsman instead of defended against batsmen. Sort of that sort of stuff that, that gets you thinking about the game. But you read the... I, I very re- rarely read the articles now um, because it's, like I say, it's just not stimulating. There's, there's a couple of guys that stimulate you and you read their articles. Who are they? Um, well, Malcolm Conn, who's got out of it, um, he was he was very good. Um, Crash Craddock, although my criticism of, of Crash for a couple of years is that he doesn't follow the cricket now. So he um, he stays at home and writes from home. So watches it on TV. So he's a little bit removed. Yeah. But I saw him at the MCG and when he follows the cricket, um, he's, he's obviously got a lot of contacts and writes a good story. Um, Patrick Smithers, who's um, media manager for the AFL, was a very good journalist. Um, unfortunately, he got out of it. But there's, there's guys AFL now. AFL taking another one. Sorry? AFL taking another one. AFL taking, yeah, not only the players but the journalists <laughs> as well. But he, he was very good at what he did. And, um, yeah, I, I just think that a lot of the the guys now, um, Andrew Wu that what's in the age, um, he, he's a good journalist. So he, he does he does his due diligence. He, he sort of, if he gets a story, he'll check on it. He won't just write it. But, mate, I, I love it when I read an article and – and uh, the quote is from a source close to the team. So I've, I just reckon if you're listening to this and you pick up a, a newspaper and you read a quote, a quote from a source close to the team, that's the um, journalist saying, I, I've just made this up. So that's, yeah. that's pure and simple. Just lazy journalism. Yeah. So oh, up. mate. Yeah. yeah. You're well, going to go into a journalism career, mate. So don't do that. That's <laughs> what Merv is saying. Yeah, yeah always, always check the facts. <laughs> Don't go, don't go off half cock. Check your facts. Have contacts where if you're not sure about a story, you can you can ring and verify it. Yeah, uh, I've got to watch out for me. I need to impress him. I <laughs> <laughs> could have an enemy in the media world. Uh, well, he's got your number now, so if you write something, uh, he's not happy with you, he'll give you a call. <laughs> oh, yeah, mate, straight on the phone. <laughs> uh, but we, we in the old days, the old days when I played, um, the, you knew all the journalists and now they're – they're just anonymous, so um, they they bag the players, and the players don't have any contact with them. In in our day, um, you used to go back to the hotel. The journalist stayed at the ho- same hotel. You'd be in the bar, you have a drink. If there was something that a journalist wrote about you, and you weren't happy with it, you just pull him aside and have a talk. Um, and that's that's not the issue now. The the journalists now are almost faceless people, where uh, they don't want to get close to the side because they they don't want the the blowback. Yep. And I guess just going back to the Ashes series, now something that I don't know if it was in that series, but I was uh, researching last night. Normally Harp is a research man, but I thought I'd jump on my laptop and do a little bit. And there's a particular rivalry. I'll just double check the name. Is it Rob Smith? Or uh, Rowan. Yeah. Rowan. Uh, Robin Rowan, Smith. Robert Smith. Robin. Now, Robin. Robin. Smith. Robin Smith. He's in Batman and Robin Smith. All right. Now you've had you had a few uh, good verbal stashes with him um, over over the years. And I was, yeah. How, how was that rivalry? Because there's a couple in the uh, the top 30 best sledges of all time and I reckon you and Robin were in about three of them. Yeah, no, Robin, Robin's a, a very tough player. There's no doubt about that and uh, more so the 93 tour. Um, I don't think he played 89, uh, but he definitely came out here um, 90, 91 and then 93. And, uh, mate, he was, he was a, a very aggressive um, in-your-face batsman and... 
I'd probably describe my bowling the same way. So uh, we, we locked horns on, on many occasions, but um, I, I still say that the guys that I had most conflict with on the ground were the guys that I get off by best get on with best off the ground and uh, certainly Robin Smith is one of those guys is that every time you catch up you have a beer and you, you just talk about the the crap that we used to get up to on the ground and um, there wasn't there wasn't anything personal in it uh, it was all business and um, we can sit down and have a beer and have a have a laugh about it. Michael Atherton's the same uh, Mike great, great patch of um, New Zealand he's pretty much the same so um, yeah the, the guys that you have those rivals rivalries with on the ground are the, the guys that I suppose you just respect um, and they they play the game fairly similar to the way you play it. So what was your favourite uh, swedge that you gave or got oh. over the years or that you heard? I know that's a tough question. I know that you've got to search far and wide, but it's something that I'm sure the listeners and us were very uh, excited. Well, mate, to, to be honest, I, I reckon my best sledge ever was maybe five, six years ago. <laughs> so playing... Playing for Crusaders, and the Crusaders is a um, virtually a team of, of past players. Peter Bedford, ex-VFL football, Victorian cricketer, um, has a lot to do with it. It's, it's made up of Swan Richards, and anyone that knows cricket knows Swan Richards. And he got it together as a, as a coaching tool. So take past players and current players into the private schools in the eastern suburbs and, and play a game of cricket. And we're supposed to help develop the, their their game, um, but very therapeutic for me, being from the western suburbs, to have the opportunity to drive over the the Yarra River into the eastern suburbs and just sledge the absolute crap out of these <laughs> eastern suburbs. It's, it's very therapeutic. But we're playing Melbourne Grammar with this particular game, and oh. um, the the way the game goes, um, Crusaders always bat first and bat for forty overs, and then the kids bat. Uh, or the, when I say the kids are young men from the, the schools bat, and they bat for 45 overs. Um, and, and normally we make about 240, 260 and, and dictate the game. Um, this particular game, we weren't that great. Um, I think we got about 100 and maybe 170, 180. Um, we've got the big quick from England that's going to terrorise the kids. Um, didn't, didn't happen. Um, I came on to bowl the eighth over of the innings and uh, Melbourne Grammar boys are none for 57. So they're, they're off to a flyer and I'm supposed to hold things up, being the old-timer, the, the experienced player, just run in and ran in, bowl the first ball, um, pitched up offside, just hit me through covers, two runs. I think that's not a bad shot. So a little bit wider, okay, just try and draw him into that, that drive and get a nick behind and drew him into the drive, hit it in the middle of the bat, goes for four through covers. I thought, well, he's pretty good on the offside, so I just straightened up my line a little bit. So I went to to middle and leg, and he just worked me through mid-wicket for two runs, and I'm thinking, this kid can bat. So we got our hands full there. I've I've been brought under to stem the flow of runs, and they've got eight off three balls, and I'm thinking, this is not good. (laughs) It's like big bash. So I I go back to to my mark and turn around to run in the bowl, and the kid's out to square leg, asking the umpire, how many balls is that? So that's all right. He gets back in, faces up. I run into bowl my next ball, go through my action, hang on to the ball and finish, I don't know, maybe two, three metres away from the kid batting. And Tommy Carroll was wicketkeeper. He's a past Melbourne grammar schoolboy. Hey, Tommy, yeah, mate, you used to go to school here, didn't you, mate? Yeah, mate, I did. I said, roughly round figures, what's it cost to send a kid here? And he said, oh, about 35K a year, Merv. 
Why is that? And I said, oh, you'd be pretty pissed off as a parent if you paid 35K a year and your kid couldn't count to six, wouldn't you? <laughs> and the kid just thought, what's that supposed to mean? Figure it out for yourself, mate. So I had a, had a bit of a chuckle about it and thought, how good am I? And then, then you remember you're playing against kids. But uh, like I said, very therapeutic. <laughs> <laughs> were they whippy the other uh, private school boys? And uh, no, no, they were, they were good. I was, I was, a few whippies. No, they were they were good. Um, mate, we played against that Seb Gotts when he was at uh, I think oh. he went to Caulfield, not um, Caulfield Grammar. Caulfield Grammar. Yeah. Um, he's he's one of the the very few guys that made a hundred against um, against us. So he was always going to be a, a very good player. And there's there's a couple of guys that we played against that are coming through now and. Uh, when you run into them, oh, mate, I played for Melbourne Grammar against you when you were at Crusades, and, and I've been told I, I, I remember Seb Gotts because he got a hundred against us. Um, I haven't run into him again, but mate, he seems a, a real good kid. But um, to go around to, to all those schools and mate, the the facilities they've got uh, are absolutely fantastic. So Carey Grammar, you go out there, Brighton Grammar, you play there, and mate, they're they're better than district grounds, the grounds they play on. Yeah, I'm a bit flat that uh, the Crusaders never made their way down to Peninsula Grammar and Mount Eliza. Would have yeah, no, liked too, to have far, hit you around, mate. <laughs> yeah, I, would have, I would have been out that with a strained hamstring too far to drive. <laughs> yeah, well, five, uh, six years ago, may have been the prime of your sledging career. <laughs> but I want to get back to the prime of your bowling career, your cricket uh, career. So we mentioned it before, the hat-trick against West Indies. Yeah. People uh, might not know about it, or I'd hope they know about it, uh, one of the most unusual hat-tricks in the history of Test cricket. Can you just talk us through it? Yeah, well, it was interesting. The Test match before, so the first Test in Brisbane I didn't play, Courtney Walsh got a, a hat-trick. So two wickets in and over in the first innings and then his first ball in the second innings. So hat-trick, no, they are saying that was an unusual hat-trick. And then we get to Perth. Um, West Indies batted first. I reckon from memory made made about 450. And then off the back of Steve War, who made 96 and, and Graham Wood got 120. We got about 390, so we were eight for about 390. Um, I was batting number 11 in this particular game um, for one good reason, Mike Whitney wasn't playing. Um, but batting number 11, Jeff Lawson's uh, batting against Kirtley Ambrose and Kirtley hit him in the jaw. He just had the, the ear guards on his helmet, so broke his jaw, hit the deck, um, we're 50, 60 runs behind, um, and that was it with half an hour to go in the day. Um, Alan Border declares, um, and I'm for, forever grateful. I think he <laughs> saved my life that day. Um, and just the astute thinker he is, uh, why did you declare, Alan? Well, we, we couldn't afford to be two bowlers short in the second inning, so <laughs> I, I'm forever <laughs> grateful. But um, we, we go in, 10-minute changeover. We've got 20 minutes to bowl. So I have a look around the room. There's Tony Dottomay, there's Steve Waugh and there's Tim May are the other bowlers. So I'm virtually guaranteed the new ball, aren't I? So Rock. pretty well pumped up and um, Alan Border comes over and says, right, you're going to start? Okay. I said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to bounce the shit out of him. I said, no, no, don't do that. They'll be expecting that. Um, get a ball on a, on a line and length. We might get a wicket tonight. Okay. And Bob Simpson comes over and says, right, you're starting. Yeah, AB told me. What are you going to do? I'm going to bounce the shit out of him. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that. Get the get the ball in the corridor of uncertainty, and we might get a couple of wickets. Oh, Where yeah. is the corridor of uncertainty for those Don't playing know. at home? <laughs> Got no idea. I think it's I think it's line and length. I'm not sure. <laughs> I had no idea. But um, as we're walking out onto the ground, um, Craig McDermott comes over, wraps his arm around me, said, "What are you going to do here?" So I'm going to bounce the shit out, and he said, "Yep, good idea. That's what I'd do. Get stuck into him." So he's twelfth man. So we've got this game plan. I'm going to bounce the crowd. So uh, run in, bowl the first ball. Gordon Greenwich back and across. LBW. Now, people say, you got a bit excited. Did you know I was on a hat-trick? And I said, well, I didn't know I was on a hat-trick. 
And people look at you and say, how dumb are fast bowlers? Like it's three wickets in three balls. But what had happened, last ball in my second last over, I got a wicket. Then Tim May bowled an over. He got a wicket in his over. Then I bowled the first ball in my next over, wicket, and that was change of innings. And then a day and a half later, as I said, Graham Wood got 120, um, Steve Wall got 90-odd. Um, we go out to bowl after Jeff Lawson's been hit. We get a wicket. And everyone said that I was over the top because I, I knew I had a hat trick. I was over the top because I got Gordon Greenwich out <laughs> first ball and the adrenaline was pumping. And uh, now I think I'm on a hat trick. Richie Richardson comes in the bat, bowl the ball to him. I claim play and miss. I reckon he would have played inside a wide one, but I'm claiming play and miss. Bowl the rest of the over, maiden. Tony Dottomade bowled his over. And then Steve Ward jogged down from slips to grab my cap and jumper for my next over. And he just said, oh, big fella, I think you got a hat trick. I said, don't think so. He said, no, no, pretty sure. He said, no, I don't. I said, how do you figure that? He said, just hear me out here. What about last ball of your second last over, first ball of your last over, change of innings, and then first ball? I said, no, I don't think that's right. And he said, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I said, well, what what makes you so sure? He said, oh, we just heard on the PA system. (laughs) So no no one in the side identified that it was a hat trick, but um, through the the over, Tony Dottomade's over, obviously it was announced at the PA system at the members' end um, and didn't hear it from where I was. But, yeah, boys were pretty chuffed. I was pretty chuffed, but still lost the game by about 250 runs. So it was probably a pointless hat trick, to be honest. Names in the record book, though, that's all. Oh, happy days, Ed. First hat tricks, they come up there. (laughs) I'm I'm always about third or fourth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're part of a bit of a weird club there. Um, Uh, Not too many hat-tricks more unusual than that, hey? uh, And and Damien Fleming took an unusual hat-trick on debut. So in Pakistan, um, had um, wicket, wicket, Joe Angel bowled an over, then they had a drinks break, and with that, Salam Malik um, was on 208, um, changed in, so he's on strike for Damien Fleming's hat-trick and running and knocked him over. So pretty unusual hat-trick there. I'm just hearing you guys talk about getting three wickets and three balls. I can't even land three balls on the pitch. <laughs> so stop showing me up, Merv. Like I came oh. here, I was feeling good about myself. But well, I, 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 didn't necessarily, I didn't necessarily land three balls in, a, in an over either. <laughs> oh, three different overs. So one good ball and over just oh. at, at the right time. I'm with you. I'm all over it, oh, Lucky. I like it. I like it. <laughs> speaking about that doubt, how was it? Because we – I'm not a stats man. I'm don't my numbers aren't necessarily always correct, but I think out of your like from your debut, you played six out of twenty-two possible tests, but you're always around the touring squad. It wasn't like you were playing state cricket right. still. You're on the tour. How difficult was that? Like also, like every time you're coming in, it seemed like you're probably playing for your spot because you knew that you yeah. had one test out for the other. Do you think that helped your game, or do you think it really just hindered it during that period? Um, probably hindered it because you you've got self doubts anyway. Mm. If you play a test match and you get dropped. Um, and you, you're more, I suppose it's a selfish attitude, is you, you're more worried about your own performance than you are about the team's performance and, and that's not a good position to be in. And um, to be honest, the first couple of years I played with the Australian side, the, um, the culture within wasn't great because everyone was worried about their own performance and really it wasn't until Ian Healy came into the side couple of years on that he started really appreciating other people's efforts. So if I sat down there and, and I'd missed out but Craig McDermott got wickets, you'd be you'd be almost jealous because you knew he's going to get picked and you're you're I waiting for the, yeah. you're waiting for the tap on the shoulder. So you know when the, when you've got um, a few few players and there's a few injuries here and there and um, you, you're not first selected and mate, I'd, I'd play I was in for a test out then I'd get picked for a test and get dropped. 
then you get picked for a test and then get dropped. And probably um, by, so 85, 86, 87, 87, 88 was probably where you draw the line in the sand and you, you say to yourself, something's got to happen soon, um, otherwise you're going to miss out. So in that time, it's not as though you're walking away and sulking that you've been dropped. You're walking away, getting to state practice and getting to state games, um, trying to understand how you can improve, how you, how can you, how, how you, you can become better. And we had really good coaching staff with Victoria at the time. So to get dropped from the Australian structure, go back to Victoria, we had Ian Redpath, uh, Keith Stackpole and Alan Conley. Um, and Alan Conley as a bowling coach, was was sensational. And you know, he played at the top level. He played a lot of cricket for Victoria. Um, so to have him, him there, and he'd been through a similar situation, so to have him there and, and to have him to lean on and, and getting um, getting advice from someone that's been in a similar position um, was really helpful too. It is interesting how you speak about how the importance of coaching because I feel like maybe back in the 70s and 80s, I, 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 for a while there wasn't a head coach of Australia, maybe earlier than that, and I, I guess coach of Australia was really a new thing. In, but from you speaking, you felt like having a good Australian coach and a good coach back in Victoria really helped your game, which is which for the first, I don't know how many years of t- – Test cricket to those the coach of Australia. Um, there was a, there was a manager, um, and then the captain sort of took control. But when Alan Border was was given the captaincy, it was sort of thrust upon him, um, and and he didn't think he was ready for it. So cricket Australia then thought that um, having a, a coach would would take a little bit of pressure off Alan Border, so he could get himself ready um, and and take over on match days. Where um, I, I think for a long time the the manager of the Australian team sort of did, did that role, organised a, a lot of things. But um, certainly I've, I've been very lucky to have really, really strong um, and, and really intelligent, smart uh, leadership throughout. So um, when I got to, to Footscray, uh, we had Ron Gaunt, the bowling coach, who former former Test player, um, Lindsay James, Ken Eastwood, who, who played for Victoria in Australia, and Jimmy Mann. So uh, club stewards and and guys that have had been at the next level. So they're actually preparing you to play at the next level, and that's certainly what Ian Redpath was doing, just preparing a heap of young guys to to play at the next level. And if you have a look at the guys that went through under his watch as coach, um, it was phenomenal. The, the numbers he got in and then to get into the Australian side and to have Bob Simpson and, and Alan Border and Bob Simpson was exactly what I needed. Um, so if I had a coach that was a little bit soft, oh, mate, um, don't work too hard today. <laughs> Happy days. I'm with you there. Straight to but, the pub. But Bob, but Bob Simpson was, you know, you need to have a good workout today. Oh, okay then. So um, he, he just – he was a really good people person where I think – a lot of coaches throw everyone into the same box and just say, right, we all do the same thing. But a really good coach separates that and and pulls guys from different boxes. And, and he was just able to get the best out of a lot of different personalities and certainly um, helped me a lot. Yeah. Now, once you really got uh, embedded into that team, uh, we were talking about – Lockheed and I were chatting about this before – you had a special relationship with a certain uh, bay of a certain stadium, oh, the MCG. Yeah. Tell us a bit about uh, your relationship with uh, that, Bay 13 the bay and the stadium. The MCG Bay 13, mate. It's it's the best sporting arena um, I would say in the world, uh, definitely in Australia. Um, to to have capacity of close to a hundred thousand people, um, and that's that's why I always said that 
there was only one thing better than playing cricket at the MCG in the Australian side was playing cricket at the MCG as a Victorian in the Australian side. The the love that we got at the MCG and the, the love that I got, particularly in front of Bay 13, was, was absolutely phenomenal. So if we played a test match there, you would hope that there was a left-hander on strike at the start of the, the game so you could walk straight down to Bay 13. Um, so Craig McDermott always bowled from the members' end and you always hoped that the, the bowler was – and I'd come from the southern end um, and you'd go down there and it was right-handers. Just, I, that's the only time I really didn't like right-handers, the, the first over on the day if they were on strike. And, and same with the, the one-days, but one-days you have fine leg and third man. So I always hope um, AB is just say, Merv, down there. So one, there was one game where he started me at fine leg to the right-hander and, and Bay 13 blew up and he actually swapped us over. <laughs> so he, he had as much to, to do with it as anyone else. But, mate, it doesn't matter where you play, home crowd looks after the home play. So you go to Adelaide Oval and Travis Head hits a four. The cheer's just a little bit louder than if yeah. Smith or Warner hits a four. You go up to up to the Gabba, Manus, Lavishane hits a four, crowd's just a little bit louder. Now, you double that crowd at the MCG um, when a Victorian – hits a boundary or, or takes a wicket, the, the the crowd noise is phenomenal. And then to walk down to Bay 13, um, it's like they haven't got a stop button. It was it was bloody fantastic, to be honest. Yeah, no, I agree completely. It was disappointing not having a Victorian in for the uh, the Boxing Day test. No, this year. Yeah, yeah, I thought I Jimmy went. Patterson might have got in there. A good good bowler, good player, but um, you know, the, the guys that they got in there are doing a fantastic job, so he's going to have to wait his turn, but he, he can't be too far away. It's interesting that you touch on that because I feel like it's a bit of a segue now to your role as a selector. Now, this is a role that really intrigues me because it's such a tough job being the Australian selector. I mean, it's so talked about throughout the media. Like, you have it's the top selection down at the pub is who should be – sorry, the top – uh, chat topic down the pub is who should be the top six batsmen for Australia. Yep. I guess I'd love to know what actually goes into that selection because you're not just pouring over the stats. You're not just looking at, okay, these are these blokes average 40 in first class cricket. They're going straight into the test match team because there's much more to that. What is the process but picking the test It's so different to the four blokes having a, having a chat in the pub over a few beers is that it's just opinion. The, other, the only thing that's different is that we're probably a little bit more informed with stats and venues and how players go against certain teams. So, you know, if we're playing against the West Indies and they've got four fast bowlers, you look at someone that does well against faster bowlers as opposed to someone who does well against spin bowling. If you play against India, uh, not so much now, but back then when they were very spin strong, you look for guys that play really well against spin. And then um, with Ashwin, the way that he is, um, you know, if we're if we've got a lot of lefties in the side, you look for a right-hander. Uh, when you play against Sri Lanka, Srinath, um, not Srinath, what was the left-hand spinners? Sirath. Sirath. Sorry, I was close. Um, <laughs> so you're looking you're looking at um, getting a right-hander in that middle order rather than a, a left-hander, and, and just things like that. Um, so, or, sorry, vice versa. You get a, so left-arm orthodox, but spinning the ball back in. Um, to to the left hander. If you're mounted up with right handers, makes it difficult. So you, you look for a left hander. So there's a, a lot of that um, taken into it. And then because we we're playing more cricket when I was um, when I was selecting, the the big topic was to take pressure off our bowlers. Was to have someone in the top six that gave us a bowling option. Um, and you know, people talk about Marcus North playing. Um, I love Marcus North. One uh, of my favourite. Well, he's well, up. he was. 
he, he got picked to play for Australia. He was the third best performed batsman in first class cricket. But the thing that got him across the line was he was the best performed off spinner in three years. So you're picking someone not only because they bat, because they can give you that option with the ball. I still love a six for 55 against Pakistan. That <laughs> was in 2010. Yeah. Like, he was one of my favourite players to watch growing yeah. up to see him get that six for And what was weird in an Australia and Pakistan game in England, but yes. that was yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Ripper. But uh, I just wanted to ask one more thing about your playing career. Uh, your knee injuries uh, that kind of happened towards the end of the career, I think. Yeah. Uh, were there any? Are there any regrets that you feel maybe you could have played on longer if they were handled <sighs> in a certain way? Or oh, mate, they were, they were handled. Couldn't have been handled any any better. As I said, we had Errol Orcott, team physio, and as a fast bowler, physiotherapist is your best friend. Yeah. Um, so we we got to England in by the time we got to England in '93. I was having a little bit of knee trouble um, and a couple of times it locked up and you just massage it out. Mate, what's wrong with it? He said, mate, you, you got this. You got this probably got a probably bit of floating bone in your knee. When it gets jammed in the wrong spot, it locks up. So um, it's not going to get any worse. If you can deal with the pain, um, you're right to go. So when we won the Ashes, I had the option to come home and, and get my knee operated on and get it looked at. There was no way known. I was, I was going to leave. We're, we're just having a great time, and I was still fit. In my mind, I was still fit to play. Um, so playing occasionally, it locked up. You get it massaged, and it'll be right. So not a problem. Um, and then get home and did it. Did it cut my career short? Possibly, but um, if I had the time over again, wouldn't wouldn't change it. And the other thing that the that cut my career short was a a young kid coming through the ranks by the name of Glenn McGrath. Um, so he, I played one test with him in, in South Africa. Um, actually, it might have been two tests with him in South Africa. Then I got dropped from the side. And mm. once you get dropped as a 32, 33-year-old, that's it, a long way back. Yeah. Um, and I, I reckon still grateful to the selectors for that um, 94 tour to South Africa. I, I reckon, to be honest, I probably didn't deserve to go, but I, I reckon it was reward for what I'd done. So it was a little bit of a, a severance pay. But um, to be part of that trip, um, to be there for Alan Border's last test match, obviously very special, um, but disappointing um, the the result um, that, that we didn't get across the board and, and that I didn't perform um, as, as well as I hoped. And coming back from the knee injury, I look back at it and well, I'd say partly to blame but probably fully to blame because I when I did the knee injury and I missed – most of the back end of the – or most of the season next year, um, I had one goal was to get back into the Australian team. Um, and I, I always say um, never be satisfied when you reach your goals. And when I got back into the Australian side, that's what I wanted to, to do. And when I did it, I just sat back and, and thought oh, I've done what I wanted to do and um, played two test matches in that South African trip, and if you have a look at the figures, my figures weren't good enough to be selected for the third. And when, like I said, once you're getting dropped as a sort of 33-year-old, you're not coming back. Yeah. Now uh, we've got one more question before we get on to some of our traditional final questions. Uh, you've got this perception as this fun, lovable larrikin character. Uh, everyone knows that Merv Hughes is kind of the man of the people kind of thing. Do you feel that took away from your school? At all in your career? Or? Oh, no, not really. I, mate, people people can look 
um, and have an opinion on on what you do. Um, and mate, an opinion's opinion, and probably the opinion that I value more is from the selectors. If if they're picking you, it means you're doing the right thing. Um, so you you. Um, doing your job within the team. Um, the opinion of Bob Simpson and, and an Al, Alan Border um, was was very important to me. So generally what the bloke on the street thinks, um, they can think, oh, I've got no control over that. But, um, yeah, I, I suppose in a lot of ways it, it took the pressure off, off my performance because ultimately no one expected too much from you. So if you got wickets, oh, yeah, Big Merv did okay. Um, and if you didn't get wickets, oh, but he's good fun, he's a good bloke. So um, it works both ways, but as I said, ultimately um, what people think of you, you can't control. So I've, I've, I'm always on a view is that what people think of me, good, bad, indifferent, um, from, if it's coming from someone I don't know, <laughs> how, how does that affect me? What do you reckon your legacy is? Um, my legacy, oh, Crusader superstar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, super, super sledger against um, 16, 17-year-old kids from Eastern Suburban Private Hero schools. of Werribee Football um, No, I'd, I'd just like I'd, – I'd like to be uh, – well, it's good to be rem- remembered as a, as a character of the game. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But um, probably the, from, from my peers and, and the guys that I play with, um, the respect and their thoughts – uh, are more important and valued to me. Um, I'd just like to to think that they would think that I was just a bloke that had a go. I don't think I was ever the best player, but mate, just just had a go. Not you say you're not the best player, but you're one of the few to be inducted in the um, Australian Cricket Hall of Fame. Two hundred and twelve. Test wickets. I mean, how much did that honour mean to you? As well as, I'd love to know. It's a two-part question. That's not uh, that not that relevant, but I just wanted to get it in there. Favorite Test wicket? Eat. Um. Well, favorite Test wicket's an easy one. Um, Google's a wonderful thing now, so people can go and Google this. Uh, second innings, Lords Test match, nineteen eighty-nine. Uh, so England batted first. I, I reckon from memory got about two seventy. Then we got about four hundred. And then um, we went out and bowled again. And we had England pretty much dusted. We had them five for five for when they passed us, I reckon. So um, we had them five for not many. And, and Gower and, and Robin Smith were getting some runs. And they, they actually put on a big partnership. And just as the game was starting to drift away from us, um, new ball was coming up. Terry Allen and Jeff Lawson bowled with the new ball. I had another spell at, at um, Gower and Smith and I was, I was bowling at Gower and um, just bowling fairly short into his ribs and I had Alan Border at mid-on. And AB just said to me, what are you thinking here? I said, well, I'm thinking I don't need a mid-on. The length I'm bowling, he's not going to drive me. So what I'm going to do is try and get him tucked up and, and maybe off a glove or something to – to backward square leg, leg gully. So he then went from mid on to backward square leg, just a um, little bit behind square leg, and two balls later, uh, bouncer tucked him up, got the handle of the bat, and he took a catch at backward square leg. And probably the most, well, two most satisfying things about that was um, Alan Border actually listened to what I had to say. <laughs> And I actually thought about how to get a wicket. So it was, it was twofold success. So that, that to me, is a, the, the best wicket I ever took in, in Test cricket. 
um, and the Hall of Fame honour, um, just absolutely blown away by it. So it's it's something that I reckon as a player you don't really think about. Um, you know, I had this beautiful speech, I reckon, prepared for about 15 years. <laughs> but if you're going to get into the Hall yeah, I'm going to jump into the Hall of Fame and my speech is going to start, well, it's about fucking time. <laughs> and then... When you get there, it just seems very inappropriate, so <laughs> I couldn't go with it. But um, just to to know the people who selected, um, so they're they're from a peer. So again, being recognised by by your peers, and to be in that upper echelon of, of players, um, just absolutely stoked. Uh, couldn't be any more thrilled. And probably the thing for me to have my family there on the day um, was. Was great, but the whole the whole thing um, was just overwhelming. Yeah, oh, mate, congratulations! But I'd love to know, Harps, have you ever taken a wicket? Oh well, no, I've played about two matches of cricket in my life <laughs> in school sport. I took a catch Ooh. once, oh. but that's about it. Uh, better better than dropping it? Oh uh, no, I didn't drop any catches. It was Good a work. crocodile catch actually, oh, so man, not mate, the just, best technique in the just world. Just got to catch them. Doesn't yep. matter how. Caught it, and uh, I'm never forget, gonna forget that one. But. Mate, we've gone through the ups and downs and kind of everything in between, but uh, we uh, ask a traditional final question yep. uh, before we get to our famous last segment. Uh, have you got a life philosophy or any quotations, or mantra, anything you live by? A oh, mantra I live by and have done for a long time is um, um, SBS and DFD. If you live by those two things, you can't go wrong. So strictly beer only <laughs> and don't fucking dance. They're the only two things I live by. <laughs> I hope your your crew don't mind me swearing, but you can bleep it out, I suppose. You've got a technician (laughs) out the back who'd be really good. Um, But, yeah, I I mean, and the mantra that I do a lot of coaching and and the mantra I try to to pass on to players and the philosophy I've got is it doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter what industry you're in, if you want to be better than the next bloke, do more. So if you're playing cricket... If everyone trains twice a week and plays Saturday, if you want to become better, you just do more. Train three, four times a week. And you know, just things like that. So just the little things, little things matter. Oh, that's awesome, man. It's funny you mentioned the swearing because I know that one of our uh, past guests who just won our uh, guest of the year for season one, Hunter Clark, he actually got in trouble from his mum for swearing too much on this podcast. She listened to it and uh, she wasn't too happy that he swore too much. Yeah, well, um, I'm, I'm safe because my mum's not that IT savvy. She doesn't know what a podcast is. I don't think she's up with the internet. Fair enough. <laughs> so I'm safe. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get to our last segment, and this is where it gets quite square because there's a lot of uh, passion in this segment. Uh, it's the world famous Where Do We Begin quiz. Okay. So, uh, I've got five questions for the both of you. You two yeah. competing against each other, Lockie and Merv. Uh, and they're all five questions have got some vague connection to your career, Merv. Yeah. Um, so we'll start So with if the- I lose this. You're a disgrace. That's right. Oh, geez, don't mention <laughs> words. Uh, well, yeah, well, he's right. <laughs> Wait until you hear so the that, questions. Yeah, but, oh, but I, so you've already seen them. No, no. no oh, oh, I've been set up. It's a setup. <laughs> <laughs> he, he knows the wacky uh, questions. Okay. Kind yeah. of get. So, yep, no worries. <laughs> Uh, a lot of guesswork needed usually. So we'll start with question one. Your name's your buzzer, so just Merv or Lockie. No. So uh, I believe uh, 13th of December, 1985, your debut versus India. So uh, <laughs> I'm, 
I'm going to need you to guess. What was that, 13th of December? 13th of December, 1985. I thought oh. it was November. How am I going? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. Maybe I misread. Maybe it was yeah. November. But anyway, <laughs> provided with 13th of December. Yep. Uh, so I'm going to need you to get to just two of these three answers to get the point. So on this day, the 13th of December, 1985, can you name the President of the uh, USA, the Prime Minister of the UK, and the Prime Minister of Australia? Geez, I wasn't even born, Merv. <laughs> America and England. Okay. Yeah, Merv. Merv, go for it. Margaret Thatcher. Correct. One more. Australia or America? Oh. Uh, how much time have I got? Sure, you um, met the Prime Minister. Sure, you. Wait, did they do that tradition where you um, went to their eight, house back? 80, 85. Bob Hawke. Bob Hawke, that was absolutely correct. Got the point. Oh, lovely. 1 0 up. Uh, so he's definitely. I can't be beaten. He's giving me the deaths there. I, I can't, like I can't be beaten. Yeah. Well, it, it is, <laughs> like it is handy. Like I reckon it is handy when you're being born, what, 25 years after the people in the question are. <laughs> Jesus. Anyway. It probably is. Probably 30 years, to be honest. <laughs> anyway, uh, question two. So I believe your birthday is 23rd of November. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. Merv, <laughs> think about that the one. Monday. <laughs> <laughs> no, Question sorry. is, so on the 23rd of November, 1991, which singer confirmed that he had AIDS the day before Lockie. he died? Lockie. Wait, 1991? Yep. Uh, was it? It was the day before he died. Merv. Easy E. Easy E is incorrect. Merv. Freddie Mercury. Freddie Mercury oh, is absolutely sure correct. 91. Oh, I thought it was Freddie Mercury. <laughs> I was thinking. Freddie Mercury. Mate, 2-0. <laughs> Can I declare? <laughs> you can just walk out to say you've won 2-0. So how many the questions are there? Three. Five. Oh. Five questions. Oh, right. Uh, question three. Uh, question three is the closest to the pin question. Uh, so uh, fellow Victorian bush ranger and famed facial hair owner Ned Kelly died on the 11th of November of which year? Lockie. Uh, 1821. 18 Actually, no. Merv. Uh, 1821 is incorrect. 1822. <laughs> yeah. Merv's got the point. He's closer. Nearest the pin. <laughs> Nearest the pin. <laughs> <laughs> it's about, I think it was about 1880, wasn't it? Spot on. Oh. <laughs> so I just wanted to be sure. I didn't want that too much. Yes. 3-0. That's great work from you, Merv. Uh, uh, I'd like to give you double points, but I've got to keep the integrity of the competition. Go play by the rules. 3-0. Okay. But Lockie's still got a chance. I come in clutch, there, there are some bonus I only, points. I only wake up in the last two questions. Oh, I'll let the guests get, feel good about yeah, themselves. No, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, and I'm feeling very good about myself. He's very, feeling I very good. Next yeah. question is my middle name. <laughs> uh, question four. So, of Bradley. <laughs> <laughs> Not even What close. is your middle name? Uh, it's Rossiter. Rossiter. There you go. Anyway, anyway name. Question four. Got that. <laughs> uh, Merv uh, was an historic city located in modern-day Turkmenistan. So can you just tell me, on which continent is Turkmenistan? Merv. Merv. Go Europe. For. Europe is incorrect. Which continent? What continent? Uh, Loki. Um, Turkmenistan. Asia? Asia is correct. I told you, Merv. Warm back. <laughs> Here we go. Merv is a, starts, yeah, it's, it's not an Asian name, Merv. European. <laughs> okay, you killed it. Nervous over there? Uh, oh, mate, I'm 3-1 up with one question to go. He's shaking oh. his boots. But one question. This uh, is worth extra points. Clearly. Oh, it's a roar. <laughs> it's a roar. <laughs> I, I thought everyone in Australia had heard this podcast, but clearly Merv uh, hasn't because okay. question five is always the who am I question. Oh, We're going to start from five points, points okay. all the way down to one point. It gives you a series of clues. Yeah. And uh, once you buzz in, 
and get it wrong. You can't buzz in again until the other person gets it wrong. And yeah, all those clues will lead to who I am, obviously. So uh, we'll start with uh, the five-point clue. I was born on the 23rd of November, 1928, in Port Ferry in Victoria. It's haven't given me much. 1928. 1928. Port Ferry. I'll move to the four-point clue. Uh, hang on, hang on. Oh, you can have a <laughs> crack five points. This, this will be big. Eight-one win if he gets it here. <sighs> Pass. <laughs> oh. Okay, we'll go to the four point. So when was it? Nineteen twenty-eight. Nineteen twenty-eight. Same birthday as you in nineteen twenty-eight. Nineteen twenty-eight. So he's ninety. Eighty-eight. Nineteen. How old is he? He's ninety-three. Did you go to school? Oh, with sorry, him? ninety-two. Bev, did you go to school with him? I could have. <laughs> uh, we move to the four point clue. Uh, for, so for four points, I'm an official legend of my sport, despite not playing nearly as many games as is usual for a legendary career. Do you want me to move on to the third point? No, no. I had to. Well, say I'm just, I'm before. just thinking. I'm just thinking. It's a cr- you got a cricketer as a guest. So nineteen, no nah, pass. Okay, we'll go to the three-point clue. Uh, Lockie's got to get it here to win it outright. And that, it's a good line of thought, but then I reckon the other week we had a hockey player on and it was an actress. So just because yeah. it's a cricket player. <laughs> well, you know these things. I, I was just putting pieces together. I'm helping you I'm out, a, Merv. I'm, I'm giving you a I'm, no, I'm no good at jigsaws either. Right. <laughs> we'll go to the three-point okay. clue. Lockie's got to get it here to win it outright. For three points. I died suddenly of a coronary atheroma in the early hours of the 5th of April, 1973. Only eight years after coaching my side to a VFL premiership. Port Ferry. So he died at 44, uh, only eight years after he... Lockie? Lockie. Tom Hafey? Tom no. Hafey, correct. He died about five years ago, I think, mate. Oh, so, so, so it was worth a shot. It was worth so a shot. If I don't get any wrong, you, you can I just, win. Yeah. I can just pass. Yeah, well... You can guess it eventually, but just guess but what you I want. just passed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I saw him. Rev's breaking key clearly. I've, okay. Uh, do, you so, have, do you want to have a guess here just to get the uh, Okay, on? so nah, tell me Hafey. Oh, I don't know. I just thought 90. I know, knew uh, that Richmond were good in the So he, he died suddenly. Port Ferry. So, and he won a VFL premiership in 65 and died in 73. 65. So that's going to be Melbourne. Ah. Uh. 65. So it's not Ron Barassi either, all right? <laughs> um, 65, who won the premiership in 65? Just a shout out to Ron if you're listening. We know you're still alive, mate. Just, um, who won the, can you, can you give us a clue? Uh, yeah, I can, I can keep going. Go to the two-point clue. Oh, uh, <laughs> two points. Uh, so so the two points. Uh, in round, oh, yeah, Lockie, you can still get it for the draw and then we'll go to a tie. No, 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 he hasn't had a guess. Oh, oh yeah, you haven't had a guess. Yeah, yeah, true, of course, of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've just given him the bird. Probably works better on video than podcast. <laughs> I can't bleep that one out. No, I can okay. see how you switched. Okay, here points. we go for two points. For two Hang points. Hang on, wait, wait, pass. <laughs> for two points. In round 10 of the 1952 season at a very muddy Brunswick Street Oval, I did not kick a goal. This would be the only time in my career uh, where I was held goalless in my 98 Essendon career. 98 game Essendon career, sorry. Oh, I know. Oh. I know. I know. Um, oh. um, he played footy down at Hastings. Yeah, he played full forward. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you Jeez, Essendon full I know, forward. I know. Um, it's a goal in every game. I know. I know. Yeah, I know. I, know. I, I can't think of his name. Oh, this is embarrassing. Pass. So I'm not. I'm not gonna. Oh, no. I'm gonna have to pass because oh, I know. Who, oh, I know that's gonna hurt oh. you. But I'll tell you who it is. I know his name. Tell me his name. I'll tell you yes or no. 
Um, oh, this is embarrassing. Oh, so Essendon won 65, obviously. Um, oh. Oh, so he coached the premiership in 65, not necessarily the same team. Oh. No. No, pass. Oh. Can, can, of, of, for one and a half points. Okay, okay. How about this? How about what this? about for I'll one go, and a half points? Yeah, I'll go to the next clue. I'll bring Lockie back in and just see if he can get it. See, okay. if, see if it's right. Well, go now. Just guess now. Yeah, just guess. John now. Coleman. John Coleman. No. Well, I'll, I'll read out the one point clue and then you see if you agree if it's John Coleman move. What for one point on the fifteenth of April, nineteen forty nine? I kicked a to this day unbeaten twelve goals on debut. So I was thinking of Coleman. Yeah. But keep going. It's not – I don't reckon it is Doc Coleman. I'll, I'll keep reading. Having, having games, kicked though, okay. an average of 5.48 goals per game, second highest average oh. ever, the AFL's leading goal kicker award is named after oh, yeah. John Coleman. John Coleman. Yeah. There you go. Oh, no. Well done. I was thinking coach. I was thinking Who's Who was the um, full forward that wore the glasses first? In oh, Bill uh, – oh, our producer might know. Jeff Blethen. No, Blethen. no, not Jeff Blethen. Um, There's someone, mate. I probably, but I was thinking Joel Coleman, yeah. and then I was thinking, no, it's not him. I thought Coleman was Collingwood. No, Coleman was Essendon. We're both big Essendon men. Jeez, well, I should have known that Essendon. Right. Good, no, good I win. thought I actually thought Coleman was Collingwood. No, no. Jeez. That's so that, that's yeah, nice but, by me letting him win by half a point. Yeah, exactly. Our first ever half point win in the history of the <laughs> Where Do We Begin quiz. So it was a pretty weak win too, wasn't it? Yeah. I should have. I should have. Well, I was thinking Joel Col- John Coleman straight away and then didn't have the courage to say because I didn't oh, want you back in the game. Oh, 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 you say that. You oh, say that. Uh, no, the three point when what was the what was the question for three points? Uh, for three points, let me get it back up. Held goal uh, for the first time. Yeah. No, no, three-point clue was he died at 44 uh, of uh, eight years after coaching his side to a VFL premiership. Yeah, no, had no idea that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, there you so go. So for two points. I wasn't game enough. I was thinking John Coleman, and then you doubt yourself. Yeah. Should just first instinct. <laughs> John Coleman. God. Thank you so uh, much for coming got, on. We've got Merv. one more thing, Lockie. Oh, of get, course. <laughs> it's the second time you've forgotten in two weeks, mate. Uh, Merv. So he's just, he's down in the dumps. He's lost by half a point. It's, it's my old age, Hart. It's my old age. Shot. So, uh, so you've got to kick straight. If you kick straight, you win. Exactly. Merv, we, we, yes. had a, we had a chat to you uh, before we recorded this podcast, uh, maybe a few days ago. Uh, we This might be a new segment depending on re- when we start releasing these season two episodes, but uh, we're getting our guests to plug a charity. Uh, oh, yes. To a charity that's close to their hearts or that means something to them that uh, maybe the listeners might want to donate to. Well, I've got the shirt on. In fact, I had a golf day on Monday. Um, Mark Taylor's an ambassador chairman for the charity. It's called A Sporting Chance Foundation. And what they do is they raise money for disadvantaged kids and other charities can apply to get money or um, individuals can apply to get money. So it goes to committee and it's allocated as such and Fujitsu and, and Sportsbet um, are really, really good sponsors. So they get some some good money in um, and you know, they've, they've raised... I'd love to love the, know the figures, but they've raised a hell of a lot of money over the last 10 years um, and Mark Taylor's right in behind it. So if he's behind it, so am I. So it's a Sporting Chance Foundation. Yeah, we'll uh, give you their socials and their website in our outro of the podcast and it'll be lovely if you could um, spare any change for them. Uh, that would be great. That would be fantastic. 
Yeah. Cheers, guys. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. Thanks very much. He's uh, outroed us before we outroed him. Harvard, <laughs> <laughs> no, Lockie, thank you very much. What's it's been, been a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it was likewise, great to have you. Likewise. Thanks so much, Merv. Wow, how good was that, Harps? Oh, Merv Hughes, what a delight it was to have him on the show. Such a legend of just Australian sport, really, and so generous with his time. Uh, one of the best guys we've ever come across. I know that for a fact. And, yeah, it was just an honour. And, uh, yeah, great time having him on the show. Yeah, and uh, speaking of generosity, Harp, so a new sort of segment that we've got is we get to plug our guest charity of the week, and this week it is Sporting Chance, which is a great foundation. So Sporting Chance was founded by Mark Taylor, Reg Gaznia, Raylene Boyle, and Bob Skilton. It is a non-for-profit organisation which is um, offers financial support and by giving mobile home care units um, that will make life easy for children with cancer as well as outreach programs for kids with cancer in regional areas. It's an awesome foundation and I'm just stoked that we can, get, can support it. Yeah, yeah, they uh, really do some amazing, amazing work. They've helped more than 6,000 families all across the country of Australia and Merv was actually wondering at the end of uh, that episode there how much they've raised specifically. We haven't got the exact figures but according to their website, uh, sportingchance.com.au, they've raised more than $14 million in support of programs, which is just a phenomenal figure, really. $14 million in support of programs. It's amazing. And like I said, you can check them out at sportingchance.com.au. Uh, I know we'd appreciate it and Merv would appreciate it. Everyone involved with the charity and the people the charity helps as well would massively appreciate it. If you could just donate, whether it's three or four bucks for tomorrow's morning's coffee or 50 cents or $50, whatever it may be, Every cent counts, and yeah, it would just be enormously appreciated from everyone. Uh, if you could donate to Sporting Chance at sportingchance.com.au. Hmm. Yeah, 100% harps. And uh, now we'll offer a little tease for our next episode. Uh, it's one of the biggest names from one of the biggest clubs in the AFL men's competition, so we're super excited to get that out to you all and for everybody to hear it. Yeah, yeah. and um, and I know uh, you, all of you guys will be hearing us this time next week because that is a massive episode. I'd like to thank all you guys for listening, supporting the show. Uh, rate us, review us. As we say, subscribe, share, support. Thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone, for listening again. And, yeah, thanks for all the support. Love ya.